Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The idea of him not going seems to send a signal that the plan won't be particularly strong. So I think our allies and partners will be fine with Morrison not going if his government puts forward a plan that's in line with the science and is much more ambitious. This debate in Australia seems to be pretty much a parallel universe. There's so much focus in the government's own debate about net zero by 2050 or not, when everybody else is focused on 2030. Hello, good people of podcasts. Welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy, the host and a political editor of Guardian Australia. And we are doing uh, my favourite genre of episode today with the team, COVID safe, obviously, in the pod cave from Canberra. We're doing one of our regular Ask Us Anything episodes. Sadly, Sarah Martin's not with us today because she's just on a day off, but I have with me, introduce yourselves. Amy Ramakis. Daniel Hurst. And Paul Clark. Also known as the Dream Team. So let's kick off with your questions. Now, forgive me in advance if I mangle people's handles or names or and also understand that some of these questions are abridged versions of what you put to us on the socials. But we're going to start with Paul and vaccine mandates. This one is from, <laughs> first one I can't work out, goal sneak. Goal sneak or possibly jail sneak. Oh, like old school. Oh, yes. Yeah, right. uh, anyway, look, not sure. Anyway, goal sneak. No Let's go with that. No longer under Scott Morrison's no more anonymous accounts. <laughs> edict. <laughs> That's a whole other edict. Anyway, goal sneak, apologies if I've stuffed that up, asks us, will vaccine mandates cause a big divide in society between the haves and have-nots? Paul, take that in the spirit in which it's intended. Well, I think there are two concepts here, vaccine mandates and vaccine passports. So the, the mandates are requiring people in certain jobs to get vaccinated if they want to keep coming to work. So that started with aged care and now healthcare. And some states have much longer lists, especially Victoria, have much longer lists of pretty much every public servant um, needing to have a, a jab. And so I think that a lot of those people will already be vaccinated. The ones that aren't face a tough choice about whether or not they want to keep their job. So this could coerce them to, to getting the vaccine. There are a few legal challenges around trying to stop that, but they're not very promising. Yeah, well, I was going to say, because I think that point early in the piece, without getting too bogged down in the legalities, was the default legal view was this would be a lawful direction if your employer said you must get a, va a vaccine in order to be in this workplace, right? Is that is that right? 
Oh, so so that that is just a private business requiring, and yet the, the government's view is that it's lawful to require them. But this the mandates is a step above that yes. because they have all the force of the public health orders yes. um, behind them, and I, I think those laws will withstand challenge just as they have every other time in the pandemic. Um, so that's the mandates, and then there's the the related issue of vaccine passports, which is if you've been vaccinated, you might you get extra freedoms at the seventy and eighty percent uh, vaccination rates, and that's a feature of the Victorian and the New South Wales reopening roadmaps in particular. Um, and I think that this is really going to depend on enforcement. Like, are are cafes, restaurants, bars? going to pay someone to force everyone to show them their vaccine passport. Because if they don't do that, then it could be like the QR code where, you know, everyone is is very correct about it for the first week or two and then sort of lets it slide and no one checks it. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, you know, you could be unvaccinated and you know, not have to show it that often and, and carry on with all the same freedoms as anyone else. There's a real question around that. I don't think the New South Wales government has really explained how that's going to work. Um, and then the other states still really need to explain what they're going to do. I mean, Queensland and other states haven't said whether this is going to be a feature of their reopening roadmaps. The ACT has gone in the opposite direction, saying our vaccine rates are going to be so high and there are human rights concerns with requiring people to be vaccinated to do this and that in their everyday life. So we're not going to have them at all. Um, but it's really going to depend on whether anyone is going to ask you to show to show it. Travelling internationally, you will have to show your, your vaccine status, but the pub... Who knows? The, who knows? Are they going to call the cops? <laughs> but it's also, though, I suppose, um, uh, whether or not it causes social tensions, like in your friendship groups and, you know, like are you going to think about... Whether, whether you invite somebody around for, you know, a, a sneaky something or other, uh, if they're vaccinated or not. I, I mean, think, I I think that'll can... depend on whether people have unvaccinated children, probably mm. more than anything, because, I mean, the vaccination rates in Australia are overwhelmingly good. Yeah. Like we've, you know, we've adopted vaccination en masse basically. So it's not as big an issue as it, as it is in the United States, yes. despite how loud the anti-vaxxers and the, the people who are against the mandates have been in the protests and how much attention it's getting. Yeah. Overwhelmingly, yeah, the vast majority. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think when it comes to those social things you're talking about, it will come down to, do you have young children in the house uh, who, who can't get the vaccination? Do you have anyone who's immune compromised? Mm-hmm. You know, those sorts of things, they're really going to play on those interpersonal personal relationships. Mm. But I think we've started to see like a fracturing of those interpersonal relationships anyway over the pandemic, where people have just been so focused on individual rights. You've already started to see families and friendship groups and even some workplaces just start to go, oh my goodness, I never knew this about you. Mm. And you've already started to see those fractures. So I think that'll probably just continue on smaller scales. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And Amy, while you're on a roll, our next question is from David Horn. Thank you, David. Uh, any substance to the persistent rumours of a pre-Christmas election? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> it's just, just an easy one. Yes. 
like, of course there is, but then of course there isn't. No one can say for sure when the election is going to be other than Scott Morrison. So there are, you know, commentators such as Dennis Atkins, uh, who's with In Queensland, who has said that he believes it'll be November 27, outlining all of his reasons for that, which would make sense for certain states, but not all of them. So Queensland, WA will still be closed. So will the Northern Territory. You know, South Australia is opening up, but, you know, whether they're opening up to mass travel with an election campaign is something different. We don't know what Tasmania is doing. So that cuts down on how many states the leaders can actually go to, the yes. campaign can go to. Yes. We know that there have been plans put in place for a virtual campaign on both sides, like just in case borders are still closed. But we don't know when Scott Morrison is thinking about going to the election because prime ministers always call them when it's best for them. Yeah, when it suits them. And is it best for, for Scott Morrison right now? We're about to see massive stress on the health and hospital system. We've got Queensland and um, WA and Victoria, populations where they're not overly enamoured of the coalition at the moment and they're facing losing seats or at least, you know, massive hurdles in those places. You've got New South Wales, which will be on a high because of the reopening, but then there's going to be other issues that come, you know, from that. Mm. So mm. is this year the best time to have an election? I would say probably not, but, you know, I'm not the leader of a political body. No, so, Well, the, the bottom line, as Amy says, is none of us know, but, do, but do, anyone in the early, the pre-Christmas election camp? I get the feeling Morrison's warming up. It's sort of, I'm I'm here to give you your freedoms. You can see the lines sort of starting to yeah, develop. That's certainly you true. know, we've got to get back to normal. I'm the only one who has a stomach to actually push for this and do this. So I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised is, is the best I can put it, I guess. I think he's talking like one is close and that he wants people uh, to remember that he was in favour of their freedoms, but I don't think that necessarily means the poll itself will be this year because um, we saw in Queensland and WA Labor governments re-elected with, ma- with you know, massive margins in the case of WA because they were in favour of keeping the borders closed. Mm. And so, uh, you know, Morrison would have the difficulty of the perception that he wants to bust those states open and, and find himself campaigning against very popular Labor premiers against a very popular well, COVID zero policy. And there's, there's one more. There's one more element to that, which is uh, also the that you're being tricky, and mm. that you're you're going because you think if you wait, things will get worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but again, again, I think we're all in furious agreement that we don't know. But this this is this is our best thoughts on balance of probabilities. We're going to Daniel now. I was just um, going to say, if there's oh. a virtual campaign, does that mean? In the leaders' debate, the voters can mute the leaders. <laughs> I think it just means there'll be like two-pack style holograms, as Paul and I were talking about. Please, oh ABBA style holograms. <laughs> oh my god, the possibilities are endless. Choose okay, Daniel, uh, this is from Pup Fiction, not Pulp Fiction. Pup Fiction. Thank you. If Morrison doesn't go to the COP in November, this is for those of you who don't speak climate change. This is the UN-led summit in Glasgow to determine the next round of international climate commitments. So if the Prime Minister doesn't go, will our allies be pissed off? They could be if it's accompanied by a very weak climate plan. So, you know, the UK High Commissioner has said that the UK, which is the host, would be disappointed if Morrison didn't go. But I think it really... The idea of him not going seems to send a signal that the plan won't be particularly strong. So 
I don't think that I think our allies and partners will be fine with Morrison not going. Really, if he if his government puts forward a plan that's in line with the science and is much more ambitious, mm. um, this debate in Australia seems to be pretty much a parallel universe. Like, there's so much focus in the government's own debate about net zero by 2050 or not, when everybody else is focused on 2030. <laughs> it's been two or three years, yeah. two or three years since the yeah. IPCC said that to keep 1.5 degrees within reach, you need to have net zero by around 2050 and also have a 45% cut by 2030. Ours is 26 to 28%, and it really isn't. It doesn't stack up anymore. Well, Scott mm. Morrison's still talking about the carbon tax. When was mm. the last time anyone seriously suggested that? We certainly are in the time warp. And, yeah, <laughs> look, I agree uh, that uh, I, I think the whole Willie or why do you go to Glasgow debate is kind of ridiculous. It's, again, sort of f- focusing on the signal rather than on the substance. I mean, what matters is what Australia does. I suppose I'd only the add... The fear that... is it's, it's, it's accompanied by a yes, dodgy policy. of course, yes, and that's, that's, that's absolutely right. I'd add just one other thought into the mix... Um, just about that, uh, and uh, if you've been watching events this week, you'll have seen metropolitan Liberals lining up to campaign for a net zero target. You have also seen the Nationals lining up against a net zero target or at least putting major asks in front of, uh, you know, their eventual agreement. If I was Scott Morrison <laughs> and I just landed a new climate policy, I wouldn't want to leave it to Barnaby Joyce to sell it either. <laughs> I would want to be here. I would not want to be in Glasgow. Anyway. Where, where Malcolm Turnbull will be. Well, well, well there's, <laughs> there is that too. There is that too. Thank you, Daniel. So, Paul, we'll come back to you. So, um, for obvious reasons, for the last week or so, integrity commissions have been well and truly to the fore. So this is a is a sort of an amalgamated question from Michael Carey and Thomas Parks, who both asked similar questions along this lines, um, along these lines. What policies will the Liberals produce on integrity uh, between now and the election? And will we see an ICAC between now and the, the putative election? So the government has a bill for a very softly, softly uh, integrity commission model that was released in November last year, and that's much weaker than the New South Wales ICAC for a whole host of reasons. Um, It only looks at public sector alleged criminality, not, um, you know, other forms of corruption. doesn't look at the private sector if the private sector is trying to influence um, public officials. It wouldn't hold public hearings. It wouldn't make findings of fact that a particular person was corrupt. It would only make, um, investigate, and then it would make referrals to, to police and prosecutors. So it's a much softer to model than what they have in New South Wales. Uh, What we've seen now with uh, Gladys Berejiklian resigning is the government is is doubling down on the softly, softly model. They said that the resignation, you know, shows the virtues of the approach that the Commonwealth has taken and the fact that the New South Wales model is too strong. Um, So... That that's what they'll bowl up in the last uh, sittings of Parliament this year. In terms of what we get and whether anything will get through, well, Labor, the Greens and the crossbench, such as independent MP Helen Haynes, are definitely up for the fight, up for amending the bill to try and make it tougher. Um, but the issue that you then have is that success in the Senate at amending this bill to be more like... Um, what we see in New South Wales, where public hearings are supposed to deter people from corrupt behaviour to begin with, the the knowledge that there will be that scrutiny. Um, 
even if they t- if they toughen it up to try and get it closer towards that model, you could see a situation where the Senate agrees to a tough bill, the government won't agree to that in the lower house, and we get nothing. Yeah. So then you'll see lobbying of the Senate crossbench. You know, the Sterling Griffiths of the world is is nothing really better than something. Will be the question for them uh, before the election, but. I foresee the possibility that it becomes an election issue because we don't have anything by then. Mm. Anyone got any alternate thoughts on that? Well, I think it definitely will be an election issue because you can see how much Labor is focusing on it and Labor, like the Coalition, are really just starting to distill all of their campaign messages. I mean, we're, we've been in an election campaign for the last three months and now we're starting to really see that, like, you know, were up in terms of messaging. It's mentioned in almost every single Labor press conference you know, National Integrity Commission like ICAC, they would only be mentioning that if they're hearing that it's something that is bothering people. And I think the most recent uh, events in New South Wales has probably led to a flashpoint in that the government thinks it's got something it can hang, uh, you know, its its views and opinions on why it can't be as strong as ICAC. But we're about to go into a couple of weeks of pretty you know, intense ICAC hearings, which might not make the government's position quite as tenable, mm. you know, mm. as, as we start to move forward. Mm. So mm-hmm. I think we're probably going to land, as Paul says, in a situation where it'll be, is something better than nothing at the moment? Those in favour of a Federal Integrity Commission think that the government's position is pretty much nothing anyway mm. and would actually set back the chances of a proper integrity commission with with teeth. Just quickly, Paul, what's your own view? Is something better than nothing? This body, I don't think, answers the description of of what people want, which is, I mean, we already have we already have police. Um, we already have the you know the crime and intelligence commission. To, the, there are already bodies that uh, investigate criminal offences. I, I think what most people think of with an, uh, an anti corruption body is is some form of of falling short on your duty or or, or perversion of that duty that falls short of being a, a crime. Yeah. So I don't have any problem with there being another another agency investigating uh, crimes, um, but I don't I don't think it answers the description of what people want. Mm, okay, um, Amy, back to you now, love. This one's from uh, Chris O'Keefe. Thank you, Chris. Uh, who asks, what's the deal with uh, with Shorten stalking Elbow? Any prospect of Shorten rolling Elbow before the election? Amy? I don't think there's any prospect of a Labor leadership change before the election, mostly because there doesn't seem to be much appetite for it, you know, among the, the party leadership or, you know, the front bench and the party itself. But also the members, I think, would absolutely revolt if if Labor was to do a switcheroo before the the next election. It just it would be just a way of just basically waving the white flag immediately, I think. But I think like Bill Shorten is always going to just cause a little bit of trouble behind the scenes because that's what Bill Shorten has done for, you know, since he lost the leadership. That's not going to change. Joel Fitzgibbon is going to continue to cause trouble behind the scenes uh, until he, you know, leaves the parliament. You're always going to have that sort of discontent within political parties. But I do not think that there's any chance of a, of a Labor leadership change. Anyone got a different view to that? I, I would think that although it's very unlikely that there would be more of a chance on the on the government side. I mean... Whoa! Whoa! Whoa. Shots fired, Paul Cup. 
Yes, why well, because it's done well, for because, PM because, cl- because when because when when and, yeah, yeah, cl- these are, yeah dangerous well, times always. Yeah, when mm. when Morrison has when Morrison's popularity has gone gone low, there's been like in Dutton that there, there there's a more nat, there's a more natural successor. Whereas I don't think that's the case on 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 the Labor side. Yeah. But again, very unlikely on either side. Yes, yeah, probably um, on balance. Uh, okay, where where are we at, Daniel? The Victorian Nationals haven't exactly welcomed the return of Barnaby Joyce. Sorry, this <laughs> this question. <laughs> <laughs> Understatement of the, of the decade. Well, well, I don't know Andrew Cole who proposed this question, but he's clearly a diplomat. So anyway, he says the Victorian Nationals haven't welcomed the return of Barnaby Joyce. Could the LNP split over climate change? Now, there's a couple of... Yes, in answering... Look, you have a go at that, Daniel. Well, I, the first thought of those, was he talking about within the Nats? And I wouldn't thought wouldn't have thought... I mean, there's a bit of product differentiation going on, but I wouldn't have thought there'd be... A, you know, a serious uh, split within the Nats. Um, clearly the Victorian Nats, including Darren Chester, who's a significant figure there, have been a, a little bit more forward-leaning when it comes to accepting the need for climate action, not so much focused on the costs of acting but more the costs of not acting and also the impacts on regional communities and the fact that regional um, Australians in many cases do want to be involved in in helping to manage the transition and, and play an active role in environmental stewardship. Now, uh, certainly within the coalition, there's a raging fight going on between the Nats and the Libs. Um, but it's not so, it's also not so simple as Nats versus Libs. You know a lot better this than me, Murph, but like the the Queensland Nats seem to be the, the main sort of pushback. And there's a bit of nuance, like Michael yeah. McCormack told yeah. you recently that the Nats need to seriously consider, consider it. Yeah. Seriously consider well, net zero. This is yeah, this is why I slightly hesitated when I put the question to you, not because I didn't think you could answer it, but because there's there's just in the framing of the question, Andrew, I hope we're getting it right in terms of getting to the bottom of what you ask. Because I wasn't sure uh and and Daniel's diagnosed the condition at this point in terms of the raging argument between Libs and Nats and, and all the nuances therein. But if you were asking, I guess. Uh, if if you were looking at that in a Queensland prism, could could the fight over climate change break up the LNP as an entity? See, I don't know if you mean that, Andrew, but if you do, let's have a think about that for two minutes. Any prospect of that over climate change? Oh, that has been something that's been an issue for the Queensland LNP since Lawrence Springborg first came up with yeah. the idea yeah. of, you know, a formal marriage between the parties. And they've come up against uh, a, a lot of challenges, you know, from fundraising and how the executive is run to what happened when Campbell Newman was a Liberal Premier with, you know, Jeff Seney, the Nationals Deputy Premier, and what happened within the state LNP then. Uh, But the thing is, Barnaby Joyce is quite sympathetic to the Queensland Nationals, you know, or the Queensland LNP people who sit in the National Party room, Uh, and he always has been, having started there himself as a, you know, way back when, when he was in the Senate. So Barnaby Joyce is managing to corral them in a way that I don't think you could see Michael McCormack do. Yes. Uh, Whether or not it's enough to split... I don't think you would actually see that because the Nationals need the Liberals as much as the Liberals need the Nationals and And that's why the marriage happened. And the election's getting closer so nobody wants to have, you know, there's the sort of imperative of 
of, uh, you know, obviously North Queensland LNP candidates and MPs will express a very different position potentially yep. in public to their constituencies than South East Queensland, yes. you know, Liberals. Yes. Uh, but, and you know, an election is coming. And, and far north, north again, sure, Warren Edge sure, again, you know. Sure. So, so like, yeah. there is an election looming. I'm sure they'll have an accommodation for different parts of the state candidates saying slightly different things, but really split just before an election, I wouldn't have thought so. Yeah, well, that's... They can't afford it. Well, there's that too. Well, I I would always defer to Daniel and Amy, our two resident uh, ex-Brisbane. And I would always defer to Amy. Uh, But uh, well, we we all defer to Amy, let's be honest. Uh, But no, in, in relation, I can't see the LNP splitting over climate change, maybe about other things, but but not not about this, Andrew. Hope that cleared it up. Now uh, I've got a bunch of uh, questions that we'll kind of use to round out that we haven't really divided up amongst ourselves. So let's just freeform this a bit and see where we where we end up. So Oliver Pocock asks, uh, how does the recent change of leadership in New South Wales? So this is obviously you know the complete disintegration of the Berejiklian Barilaro government. Uh, <laughs> and, and a quick change of personnel. Uh, how does that affect federal liberals and nationals, if at all? It's a good question. What do we reckon? Uh, well, the biggest impact would be on financial relations because Dominic Perrottet wants a, a carve-up of the GST to take some of the money that WA got off. And we Wicked just, WA. We, yes. just, we just heard Morrison is lock, stock and barrel with, with WA that the GST formula is not changing. But there are other financial arguments to be had, like there's hospital funding. New South Wales agreed with all other states and territories in calling for more hospital funding. So Dominic Perrottet could take that issue up to Morrison. Um uh, really, I think the biggest change is Perrottet, more than Gladys, is going to try and speed up the, the pathway yes. out of yes. uh, out of COVID restrictions. Uh, and I'm not sure that's going to create an argument with Morrison, but it could inflame tensions between Morrison and other premiers if it doesn't go very well for New South Wales. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if, the, if other premiers use case numbers in New South Wales to justify borders closed for yes. longer. I think that's how it would play into the National Cabinet argument. Yeah, that's my gut feeling. Yeah, I think, Any other thoughts? I think Dom Parate seems to be a very similar politician to Scott Morrison as well, whereas Gladys Berejiklian, you know, was a, was a different type of politician and seemed very loyal to the party, so she didn't really engage in as much state-federal backgrounding as, you know, some of the leaders can do, and she just tend to you know, be quiet. She kept her barbs, you know, for behind well, she's, closed doors. Well, she's sort of notoriously conflict-averse, where, yeah. whereas not all premiers are notoriously conflict-averse. Yeah, and um, from Some what... like having a staff. Yeah, yes. and from what I've seen so far, Dom Perrottet doesn't seem to shy away from conflict, which uh, I think, especially as he's trying to establish who he is as a leader and, you know, which direction he's going to take New South Wales in, could see him butt heads with Scott Morrison uh, just o- over, you know who has jurisdictional power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All good thoughts. Two more on my list. Let's do this one. This is uh, from Didier Guren. Goodness me. <laughs> should have worked harder on the French. Sorry about that. Um, uh, uh, who asked? So should we. It is a country. Or should we? Oh, dear. Trey, awful. Anyway, oh. uh, is there is there an appetite for a third uh, major party of grouped independence in the coming election? What do we reckon? Daniel, you look like you want to just throttle this one. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Why don't we just stick with maybe? <laughs> maybe. Yeah, I'm well, that's, that's a good answer, Paul. Well, I think the voices movement and ca- the model that Kathy McGowan had uh, of trying to have a grassroots up approach um, has been relatively successful. I mean, her passing her seat on to, to Helen Haynes mm-hmm. is I think that's the first time it's ever, a seat has ever gone federally from one independent to another. So I think that shows that that model of organising works. As to whether or not they would be grouped, uh, I mean, it, it seems that people organising uh, on that model have some similarities in terms of uh, climate change uh, and and, uh, and an integrity commission. And, yeah. mm-hmm. So there are some similarities, but probably not enough that they would ever be a party. It's just how many how many people can take that model and do that and will they hold the balance of power? Mm-hmm. Amy? Yeah, no, I would agree with that. You could have a loose coalition of independents, but you can't have independents in no, a party. in a group. Yes, it's sort of the, the, it's kind of a contradiction and in the terms. Model, the model's meant to be, you know, a strong independent local champion. Yes, so exactly. not part of the power structure is, uh, how, yeah. they're, is how they're presented. Yeah, I think right. with given the voices of movement and just, you know, from what we're seeing from, you know, polling about the shift to independence and other sort of minor parties is what happens with those preference flows as well. Like if you're naturally a conservative voter, are you going to be like, okay, with an independent who's representing you on climate change, but fiscally is more conservative? So where do your preferences go and how does that impact the election? So yeah, I suppose the only other thing I would add to that is uh, obviously we saw this in the last federal election campaign, this organising, this mode of organising in 2019. I think we would say from that experience, the success was variable. Uh, so I think to a large degree, actually, apart from public appetite for uh, whether people want an independent, and as Amy says, like whether traditional Liberal or Labor voters can bring themselves to vote for someone other than their team, in inverted commas, so obviously pu- public appetite matters. But I think what matters most is what these people have learnt from the last election campaign, whether or not... Uh, they've uh, that they, there's enough sort of uh, organisational memory in these groups to think seriously about what worked and what didn't and what what else you might need to think about in terms of uh, this this contest because obviously the dynamics of this contest are different from the last one so. That'd be my thoughts for what it worth. So the last one is from Nikolai. So uh, <laughs> there's quite a bold statement in this question, but I think there's, uh, I think yes, there's, to laugh. <laughs> I think, uh, I think there's a reasonable discussion here for us to end on, and I think people will appreciate uh, the honesty of uh, of thinking about. Uh, our, our methodology as journalists. Uh, so that's why we're ending here. Uh, as a journalist, Nikolai asks, what's your take on the way the media has essentially dismissed a corruption allegation as no big deal? Now, I can only presume that Nikolai is referring to the reception uh, of uh, Gladys Berejiklian's exit from uh, the Premiership of New South Wales last week. Obviously, the media is a big statement, I would say, but anyway, there's a substantial question there. So, Amy, what do you reckon? Uh, I was quite taken aback by a lot of the reaction, not just from the media, inverted quotes, but also just uh, punters and people who uh, who took liking a politician and liking what somebody has done for New South Wales 
and and transferred that to, you know, how could this happen? She's just fallen victim to her heart, removing all agency and, and ignoring the fact that we've known for some time now that Gladys Berejiklian has had some questions to answer. And I, I read a, a thread by, I think it was an ex-Chicago Times editor who who discussed on the weekend the issue of what's happening with Republicans and Democrats in the United States. And he uh, brought up the term of ethics norming, mm-hmm. which is basically where we are so used to questions and clouds and all the rest of it being raised now, and we just think everybody does it. So we're able to normalise behaviour that perhaps a few years ago, we wouldn't have accepted. Mm, We put it all on the same level. And I think that that has really started to creep in to Australian politics. Mm. And that's before we even get into issues of access journalism and, you know, whether some journalists are too close to the people that they're reporting on and all the rest of it. But I think there is such a fatigue around politics where people are so used to politicians perhaps or allegedly not acting in the the interests of the people that when things happen, everyone's just kind of like, well, that's normal politics. Mm, Very interesting, love. Yeah, what do you think? Yeah, the the sort of idea of um, scandal overload is, is troubling. Like, we need, as journalists, we need to hold firm on the idea that these norms need to be upheld. And it's not about removing the presumption of innocence. It's about holding true to norms that need to be upheld mm. and insisting on answers to questions that need to be answered. Mm, exactly. Paul, you will have thoughts, I know. I'm I'm not surprised about, uh, about the way some people have taken it um, because before... Gladys Berejiklian resigned, I actually wondered whether she wouldn't dig in. There seemed to be this assumption that if ICAC called another hearing and said that she was a person of interest, that she would definitely resign. But we've seen in other scandals, uh, both in Australia and overseas, uh, political leaders say, I I didn't do it and that should be enough for you. Uh, She would have had the excuse of of the pandemic of needing to lead New South Wales uh, out of coronavirus restrictions as an extenuating circumstance to stay, and she is still reasonably popular despite Delta. So I wasn't sure that she'd definitely go. When she did decide to leave and then there was this outpouring of grief and and media felt somehow it was their role to reflect their audience's views about uh, Gladys back to them rather than to try and explain the seriousness of of, of what she had been called to, to ICAC to talk about. Mm. I mean, I, I, I found that outpouring um, sort of validated my, my earlier concern that the norm was going to be overlooked, that mm. she was just going to plough through it. Mm. I, I wonder myself, um, you know, all, all really good, guys. Thank you. Um, I wonder myself whether there's something, <laughs> I know this is going to sound really weird, uh, but I'm reading a, a, at the moment a book called The Body Keeps the Score, which is mm-hmm. uh, about uh, how people process trauma. Very good book. It is a fascinating book, um, except if you want to be terrified about attachment parenting and whether <laughs> or not you've succeeded or not. But anyway, putting that to one side, um, obviously uh, there has been a great global national intra international trauma in terms of coronavirus. Um, and I wonder, you know, the premiers have, have risen, obviously, to, to national prominence. Uh, people, in a strange way, have attached themselves to, uh, to these figures, to these figures who have wielded actual power in a crisis. 
I just wondered, because it surprised me, <laughs> sort of the normalising tone of poor Gladys when obviously there are serious questions to answer. I sort of was a bit taken aback by it. And I wondered just whether or there was something more primal going on, that it's sort of like here's a figure, we're used to that figure, that figure has made, well, not all great decisions. Uh, some of them have been totally shit, let's be honest, but it has made decisions, we know them, et cetera. What, Paul, you want to jump in here? Yeah, they, they stand up every day, so they become like the, the face of the government and people have become very reliant on the government for, for, for the rules about what they can and can't do to protect them from this deadly disease, for income support, for all these things. And so this conception of the premiers as like state mommy or state daddy, mm. I think mm. is 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 real and that some people feel like when the cases go down, you know, thank you, Gladys, when the cases go up, only Gladys can protect us. Mm. And, and they feel like this in, in every state and territory about their leader. And I, th- I just think it's natural. I'm not, I don't think any of us mean these remarks in any sort of patronising way at all. I just think it's, it's kind of weirdly natural human behaviour to kind of you know, uh, sort of identify the leader and pattern, you know, sort of uh, the, the leader sets the tone. Anyway, that's all probably deeper than Nikolai wanted. Well, but anyway. I, think, I think the most troubling aspect, though, is the questions it's raised over ICAC and whether it has a role uh, and the commentary around that because ICAC does not assume guilt. It doesn't assume innocence. It builds a case behind closed doors in what they call in-camera hearings if they think it has enough evidence to move forward with an investigation. And that's it, just an investigation. It then does that. And then we see that investigation play out in the public sphere. It doesn't even lay charges. That's up to, you know, the DPP in in New South Wales Mm. to decide whether or not. So this idea that we're taking the lionising of a politician that many people, as as you've all identified, have attached themselves to because we are in the midst of a of a pandemic and a and a huge global trauma. And we're now t- saying, well, do we even need to have these sorts of investigations because they don't necessarily come up with, you know, black and white answers? Yeah. It's quite troubling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyone, have we exhausted this or we've oh, got final thoughts? I, I was just going to say, yeah, presumption of innocence, the way it's being used, it's almost meaningless and it's it's almost got to the point where it, it only means that we, we don't like that that person is being investigated. Or, or has to answer questions. Yes. Or, yeah, yes, it's sort of... And it's not a kangaroo court because, you know, as Amy said, it's up to DPP in the future about, you know, <laughs> yeah. whether somebody's liberty is taken away well, from them. Well, like, yeah, uh, like and, they and can't the convict process, anyone. The actual yes, court process, they yes. can't convict anyone. I, I think there are legitimate arguments about how you constitute these bodies and the limits of them and all of that sort of stuff, but <laughs> it's been way over... Overworked some of this in the in the recent discussion. Anyway, I think sadly that's all we've got time for. Um, I want to thank my team, who, as you can see, are the best in the known universe. Um, I want to thank all you guys for bowling up really good questions. Every time we do these episodes, we get really really good questions from people, and I I'm grateful for that. And uh, we feel like we're here to answer them. So thank you for your input. Thank you to Miles Martignoni, who's the EP of the show. Thank you to Karishma Luthria, who will cut the episode this week. Stay safe. You know the drill. If you're reopening in New South Wales over the next little bit, good luck to you. Stay safe. All of the usual precautions. Take care and we'll be back next week.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax with their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.